This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Today we continue our series from the book of James to see what this first century book has to say to 21st century America. So first, I present two famous first lines of novels, lines which I believe describe America today. First, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Anybody recognize that one? It's the first line of Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, but it's also us today. Technologically, this is the best of times. Marvels of technology greet us day by day. But spiritually, it is the worst of times, the worst I can remember in my long life. Here's another famous first line. It was a dark and stormy night. That is the first line from the novel universally declared to be the worst novel ever written. And yes, we live in a dark and stormy night. Dark, deep, and stormy. Noisy, scary, out of control, neither sun nor stars to guide, captains and crews plunging along, heedless of danger. In fact, you and I are just like the Christians to whom James wrote in the first century, a minority group in a pagan culture. So, let's hear what James says to us today. Our passage begins, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The word therefore presents a problem. Imagine that Jim Foster, our senior warden, gets up here and makes an announcement. He says, therefore, the vestry voted to fire everybody named Jonathan. And that's all he says. What's missing? The reason. Therefore is a conclusion. Something has to come before it. For example, we have two therefores in the Eucharist. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels. And later, therefore, let us keep the feast. Both of those are responses to something, as is our submit to God. Fortunately, in his sermon last week, Father Jonathan gave us the why. Because God yearns for us and gives us grace. Therefore, says James, submit yourselves to God. The rest of the paragraph is great stuff about living a life submitted to God. But I think that the heart of it consists of two admonitions, which are physically and spiritually right in the middle. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. James didn't just think that up. He was a Jew writing to Jews who had been chanting psalms all their lives. James is echoing Psalm 24. Question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? That's Mount Zion where the temple was. And who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, those who have clean hands and pure hearts. Clean hands, pure hearts. CH, clean hands. PH, pure hearts. Write those letters on the inside of your eyelids. Sew them under your t-shirt and go out declaring to the world, C-H-P-H, clean hands, pure hearts. 
That's what it takes to be in God's presence. The psalm was an entrance into worship psalm, so it raises a question for each of us. How do I prepare for worship? How do I get ready to come into this holy space, focused and quiet? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him, writes Habakkuk. Indeed, ancient rabbis stood silent before the Lord for an entire hour before they began to speak the prayers. Beyond CHPH, clean hands, pure hearted worship, by extension, we are always in the presence of God, and therefore, clean hands and pure hearts as are characteristics of God's holy people in all of life. Clean hands refers to our external selves, what we do, what we say. We cleanse them when we repent, confess, and receive absolution. Purify your hearts is a bit more subtle and requires that we know what the word heart meant in the ancient world, the world of the Bible. We modern Westerners equate heart with emotions, feelings. Red hearts all over Valentine cards and candies. Bumper stickers declaring, I, red heart, my dog. Not so the ancients. For them, heart meant your whole inner self, feelings, mind, and will. And the heart was the decision maker. So purify yourself, purify your heart, meant your whole self, not just your feelings. Purify your whole inner self, emotions, mind, and will, says James. Now that doesn't mean be 100% sinless. That isn't going to happen. A pure heart is single-minded. We know that because James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be single-minded, not trying to be a friend of God and a friend of this world. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth. Not, I'd rather you didn't. You can't. It's impossible. If you try, you'll be a split personality, torn within yourself, at war with yourself, torn apart. We must choose. Joshua assembled the people of Israel one day and said, choose this day whom you will serve, the Lord or Baal. And they said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord. He has brought us out of Egypt. He protected us all the way. Therefore, we will serve the Lord. Later in Israel's history, Elijah asks them, how long will you limp with two opinions? If God be God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind. And let me, by the way, say, if it's going to be God or Baal, you can't stay, I'm going to be, stay neutral on that. There's some questions you can't stay neutral on. This is like, will you marry me? You can't say, I'll stay neutral on that, because when you say that, you've made a decision. So, okay. Single-mindedness means that there is in your life an overarching principle which controls your decision-making and governs your actions. 
Express it how you will. I want to get to be more and more like Jesus. I want to be more holy. I want to glorify God. If you are not sure what your overarching single-handed principle is, ask God to give you one and to make it clear for you. Last month, we had two very public figures who exemplified single-mindedness. One was Senator McCain. No matter of what you think of his politics, the consistent testimony about Senator McCain was that throughout his life, in the military, the House, or the Senate, he has a single-minded, he had a single-minded goal, what's best for the nation. In that same week, we lost Aretha Franklin in quite a different realm of life. But she was also very single-minded. When she was going to do a new song, she would isolate herself and not answer the phone, not talk to anybody, as long as it took for her to get that song the way she wanted it. Then she would emerge with the song. Purify your hearts, thus James. Now Jesus, what does he say about having a pure heart? There's an important piece of information that enlightens what he, what he meant. During the time of Jesus, there was a hefty collection of rabbinical teaching called the Mishnah. In its modern version, it has about 200 pages of cleaning things. Cleaning your hands, cleaning your pillows, cleaning your dog, cleaning your rug, cleaning your furniture, cleaning this, that, and the other thing. And not one word about the heart. All about cleaning your dishes, etc. That was the body of rabbinical teaching that Jesus would have had access to. Now along comes Jesus, also a rabbi, of course, but he makes a courageous decision he does a total reversal. You get no words from him about cleansing hands, etc. With him, it's all about heart. You will recall that the beginning, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he starts with a list of blessings. Blessed for the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, etc. You know them all. Well, the sixth one is blessed are the pure in, here, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So what does blessed mean? There are two words which are translated for bless. One is the bless that we say for something which hasn't yet occurred. Lord, bless our children. Lord, bless this meeting, and so on. In the blesseds at the beginning of Matthew 5, it's the other word for blessing, and it's pronounced in two syllables, blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Ken Bailey explains that blessed here does not mean people who do X, people do X because they will get Y. No, that's not it. This blessed in the Beatitudes means 
according to Kenneth Bailey. Look at the authentic spirituality and joy of these people who have or will be given this, whatever is at the end. They exist in a state of happiness and good fortune already. That's the point. In the Beatitudes, the people who are said to be blessed are already in possession of this thing, and the outcome will be that they, they already have it, so whether they have it or are having it now, they really do have it internally, and they certainly will. So we will, the pure in heart, see God. That is stunning. Remember, it's an existing state of happiness. The single-minded already are in the existing state of happiness. They will see God. Now, how can we do that now, since it's already ours? Karl Barth was arguably the best theologian of the 20th century. And he was in Switzerland for most of his career, lecturing and teaching. And people went from all over the world to hear Karl Barth teach. One day he was on his way to work on the bus, and a young man came and sat beside him. And of course, being an American young man, he started to chat. And he said, oh, I've come all this way just to see Karl Barth. I am so excited. I am so excited. Have you ever seen Karl Barth? And Bart replied, oh, yes, I shave him every day. The young man got off at his bus stop and went to see his friends and said to them, oh, guess what? I have seen Karl Bart's barber. When we're talking about seeing God, we want to really see God and recognize him. That's the point. We have seen his barber all over the place, and then we will see him face to face. And I can suggest a couple ways how. One is to notice nature. I'm not suggesting that you become a druid or anything like that. You know that perfectly well. But Jesus looked at nature. He said, look at the wildflowers, how they grow. Look at that sparrow. Because you could learn stuff about God by observing them. Now, whether you're a microscope person or a telescope person, you're going to behold wonders if we would only look. Now, I know there was a little, uh, there was a camp once at which the teacher said to some little boys, what can we learn about God by observing nature? And one little boy said, he likes rocks. Okay. But the design is just astounding, no matter how you look at it. And also, the beauty. The beauty is a sign. All the beauties are signs of God. Ways of seeing God. The beauty of music. The beauty of the visual arts. The beauty of some people. They are all reflections of the ultimate beauty. And of course, as Augustine says, late have I loved thee, Beauty so ancient and so new. We can also see God in Scripture. His hand, his work, his unconditional love, 
in sending his only son to open to us the gates of heaven. And we can see God through his son Jesus. Open a gospel to any event and enter it imaginatively. Suppose that you are blind Bartimaeus and Jesus heals you. The first thing you see is his face. What do you think that face looks like? Picture it. See Jesus feeding 5,000 with just five small loaves and two fish. Picture him at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. He has just changed 120 gallons of water into wine. What do you think he looks like? Having done that and seeing all the people dancing, and I bet he was dancing too. I don't think he was slumped against a wall looking disapproving over everybody. Oh, yes. And see him with a whip lashing the money changers at in the temple. Their tables turned over he rolled, and their coins rolling all over the place and animals running around making all kinds of sounds. What do you think he looks like? You can see God. Yes, gather him, watch, watch him gather little children into his arms. And yes, we can see the face of God in scripture and finally stand with Mary and John at the foot of the cross and you will see God. And besides nature and scripture, you may have a vision. I suspect that there's more of that than, we've, than we know about because most people who have visions don't dare tell them to anybody. But why not? The prophet Joel said that in the era of the Holy Spirit, which we are in, your young people will see visions and your old people will dream dreams. That could happen. And we hear in the Eucharist every time we celebrate it. And bring us with all your saints into the fullness of your heavenly kingdom where we shall see our Lord face to face. Whoa, what a moment that will be. In closing, I offer a verse from Psalm 27. One thing have I asked, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold the fair beauty of the Lord. Dwell and behold. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Amen.